The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the second chapter, verses 23, 24, and 25. The Gospel according to St. John, chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of men, for he knew what was in men. I want to consider these words with you not only as I have just read them to you, but also in connection with what follows in the third chapter, namely the story and the account of how that master and teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, went and paid that visit to our blessed Lord and Savior by night. Because undoubtedly these two things belong together. And the story of Nicodemus is partly to be understood and to be explained in terms of this proposition which the evangelist John lays down there at the end of that second chapter in what he tells us about the attitude of our blessed Lord and Savior to those people in Jerusalem who believed on his name, in his name, when they saw the miracles which he did. Now, the great message of the Bible, as we were considering last Sunday evening, is in a sense just this, that the most important business in life is to know God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. That is the great message of the Bible everywhere. It comes to us in a world in which we have many strange kinds of problems which come to us within and without. But face to face with them all and in the midst of life and all its attendant circumstances, that according to this book, is the thing that must come first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we spent our time last Sunday night in proving and in demonstrating the priority of this interest. How that from every standpoint, it doesn't matter how you approach it, there is nothing, there can be nothing, which is of greater importance than this. Now, that's not to take away, in any sense, from the importance of many other subjects. Our Lord uttered those words, you remember, uh, to men who are very much concerned about what they should eat and what they should drink and how they should dress. He doesn't say that those things are completely unimportant, but what he does say is that they're not the first things. And indeed, that there is nothing which comes before this, nothing whatsoever. Because here we are dealing with God, we are dealing with the highest thing that is in ourselves, we are dealing with the highest interest of our lives. 
we are dealing with something that gives us the highest and the noblest conception of life and still more urgent. We are dealing with something that applies not only while we are in this world of time but which will also be applicable when we die and go out of this world into the world that lies beyond the veil. Now, here is the picture, and the whole business of preaching as I conceive it is just this, is uh, to help us and to bring us uh, to remember that every one of us is an immortal soul, and that at best we are but journeymen and travelers and sojourners in this world of time. Now it's very difficult to realize that, isn't it? If we are guided by the world, we'll never stop to consider that at all. But you know, my friends, whether we stop to consider it or not, life will sooner or later make us realize it. And it is the essence of wisdom that we should realize this. Teach us, says the psalmist, so to number our days that we shall apply our hearts, our minds, unto wisdom. Now, obviously, that is the central thing and the most important thing of all. We are not here in this world uh, simply for a while, and then when we die, that's the end of us. No, no, we are going on. The soul, the spirit, will continue and will go on into eternity. And therefore, the great message of this book is that we must be concerned about that before anything else, and that therefore the supreme thing for us is, oh, to enter into this kingdom of God and to know this righteousness. So you find, when you come to the pages of these four Gospels, and you look at the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that he's always talking about this kingdom, and talking about how to enter this kingdom. And I say nothing surely uh, can be more important for us than to know for certain how to enter the kingdom and to know for certain that we are in the kingdom. Because the authority, the only authority that I have as I stand in this pulpit is the authority of this book. And it tells me that men's destiny is one of two things. We either go on to be with God and to be with Christ and to enter into a life of glory that baffles the imagination, leave alone description. Or else, we go on to a life of misery and of wretchedness and of unhappiness. A kind of perpetuation of this world, only much worse. Now, very well, as we are thus confronted, I say, by these two tremendous possibilities... What can be more important than for us to discover and to know how to enter into this kingdom? And I'm impressing this and stressing it for this reason. That the message we're going to look at tonight brings before us the importance of paying great attention to this and doing it in a most careful manner. For we all tend for some reason, and the reason, of course, is finally our sinful nature. We tend to assume certain things and to take certain things for granted about this kingdom of God. We think we know all about it. 
And we may fondly imagine that we are in it when in reality we are not in it. And therefore I say we must pay attention to the teaching of the scripture. And as we come to look at it, this is what we discover. That it, it itself is something which is very different indeed from what we had always thought and what we had always imagined. You can't come to the scripture without uh, constantly being taken aback, as it were, and pulled up suddenly and saying, well, is that, is that the truth? Can that possibly be right? That's almost the exact opposite of what I'd always thought of and what I'd ever taken for, for granted and had assumed. Now then, I say because of that, it behoves us to take great care in these matters. And the way to take care, of course, is to read the scriptures themselves. Not to take it for granted that we know, but to say, what set the scripture? What does God himself really teach? What did the Son of God say? What did he teach these inspired apostles to say? What really is the position? Now, I say once more, we have no authority apart from this, and here is this authority. And as we come to it and uh, turn to it, well, if we are honest, we'll have to admit that our own ideas and preconceived notions sometimes are shaken badly and receive a very rude kind of awakening. And we are confronted by something that we would never have imagined for a moment. Now then, let me illustrate that from this very matter which we are going to consider together this evening. I ask you, do not these two cases here come to you rather as a surprise and as a shock? Here is the first one. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. And we want to shout hallelujah, that's just the thing that we were expecting to see. Many people believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderful, marvelous results. And then I come across this word but. And who would ever expect to find a but after that? But here it is. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them. Because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of men, for he knew what was in men. Now I say we would have assumed, would we not, that here were people who had gone crowding into the kingdom of God. But the teaching is that they were not in the kingdom of God. And that the one who makes it plain that they were not in is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And exactly the same is true about the case of Nicodemus as I'm going to show you. Don't you feel as you read this story that it really does come to you with a great element of surprise and almost as a shock? I mean, our Lord's handling of Nicodemus. Here is a man, we are told, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do those miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Was ever a man in a more hopeful position, we would have said would our Lord ever have been more pleased with a man than with this man? But you know, our Lord handled him in almost a brusque manner. He handles him with a real severity. 
He suddenly interrupts him before he has time to finish his statement, and he says to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, there is the point I'm making to you. Surely there's something here about this kingdom of God which we didn't expect. It doesn't seem to be the sort of thing we'd always imagined. For here, I say, we would have thought we have the most hopeful position of all, and yet it turns out not to be so. Very well, let me put it to you in the number of prop uh, simple propositions. Here is the first. There is very clearly taught here and elsewhere, of course, in the Scriptures, the possibility and the danger of a false belief, of a belief which may appear to be a true belief, but which in reality is not a belief at all, and which the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, rejects. Now, I am of course calling attention to this for the reasons that I've already given you. It is because we find ourselves constantly standing between life and death. Now, is that to be morbid? Is that to be depressing? My dear friends, believe me, it is no desire of mine to be morbid or to be depressing. But my very calling, my very life, leads me constantly to witness situations in which when it's least expected, something suddenly happens, and men and women find themselves face to face with eternity. And you see, age doesn't come in at all. It doesn't matter whether you're young or middle-aged or old. You're subject to disease, you're subject to death. And because of that, I say, the most urgent thing facing us at any moment is, am I in that kingdom or am I not? And here is this terrible possibility, this dread danger of imagining that we're in the kingdom when we're not in the kingdom. That's the great message that is taught here. Now let me bring it out. Let me show you the possibilities, the extent to which one can go and still be outside the kingdom of God. Take, first of all, these people there in Jerusalem uh, when our Lord was up there at the Passover. And we are told that on the feast day, many believed in him when they saw the miracles which he did. You notice what it says. Here are people who were astonished at his miracles and impressed by them and attracted by them. Now, you know that that wasn't true of everybody. There were some people who were annoyed by our Lord's miracles. The Pharisees used to be infuriated by our Lord's miracles. And they hated him and they criticized him for performing them on a Sunday or something like that. The effect of the miracles upon them was to annoy them. But here are men who, having seen the miracles, are astonished, they're amazed, they're attracted, they're interested. But we are told that they went further than that. We are told that when they saw these things, they believed in his name. Now, what does that mean? Well, it clearly means this. That they had an intellectual conviction concerning the fact that he was the Messiah. 
that he was the deliverer who was to come. And it's very simple to imagine them turning to one another and talking to one another and saying, didn't you see those miracles? Didn't you see what he's just been doing? How can a man possibly do these and not be the Messiah? They said, this man must be the Messiah. They believed in his name. Well, here is the position. They accept the miracles. They're not in any trouble about them. They don't argue and reason and try to prove that he hasn't worked them, as you'll find so often in these Gospels. No, no. They just take them all and believe them and accept them. And on the, on the basis of that, they believe in his name. And yet, you see, Jesus did not commit himself unto them. Now, I put it to you very seriously and very solemnly that that's a very alarming thought. I think that many today would be very happy indeed to receive people like this. They receive people on much less than this. Any sort of indication that people want to join a church or to join some organ at once they're put down. If they just give the slightest glimmering of an agreement or an intellectual at once. But here are people who have gone as far as this and our Lord has nothing to do with them. He didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't commit himself to them. They don't belong to him. Or take the case of Nicodemus, which is in a sense a still more remarkable case. Look at this man. It is indeed one of the most astonishing pictures in the whole of the scripture. Here is a man who is a, a master in Israel. He is a great teacher. He is an expert in the law. He was a Pharisee and authority. And yet you notice that in spite of that, and unlike the majority of his colleagues and his fellow Pharisees, he is not prejudiced against the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not prejudiced against his miracles, as I am reminding you that so many of the Pharisees were. Now that's a tremendous thing. The Pharisees instinctively took up an attitude opposed to Jesus Christ, they said, who is this fellow? He isn't a Pharisee, he hasn't been trained amongst us, and therefore who is he and why does he arrogate this power of teaching unto himself? And they hated him and they persecuted him. Not so Nicodemus. Well, that's a wonderful thing in a Pharisee, that in spite of the prejudices of his class, here is a man who at any rate is not antagonized and still preserves an open mind. He goes further than that. Having again watched our Lord and his miracles, he recognized that he must be a teacher sent from God. For when he went to our Lord, that's what he said to him. We know that thou art a teacher sent from, come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Now, if we could but get back the whole position of the Pharisees, I say that that would astonish us and amaze us. That a Pharisee of all men should say something like that. Not only that, it's perfectly clear that Nicodemus recognized the superiority in his Lord to himself. That is why he went to him. He watched these miracles and he said, while it's perfectly true to say that I am a master and I know a great deal more than these people... Here is something that I haven't seen before. Here is something that I can't match. 
Here is something that I can't equal. What is this? This man has got hold of something that I haven't got. Now he's big enough and he's humble enough to recognize that and to see it quite clearly. And of course, because of that, he takes the trouble to investigate further by going by night to seek this interview with the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, there is no question whatsoever that in doing that, Nicodemus was taking a great risk. He knew the attitude and the position of the majority of the Pharisees, his colleagues, and yet in spite of that, he is so attracted by these miracles and by this person that he says, at all costs, I must go and see him and put a few questions to him in order that I may discover what this extra something that he has rarely is. Well, now take all these things together. And I ask once more, uh, what could you desire beyond this? Wouldn't you be inclined to say at once, well, surely, here is the very sort of men in whom the Lord Jesus Christ is going to delight. Here is a man, surely we must all be ready to recognize as a Christian. And yet we remember the treatment that was meted out to him. Our Lord handles him sharply with almost a note of severity, pulls him up, stops him, says, no, no, stop, you, all you're saying is all wrong. You've got to go back again to the beginning. You've got to become as a little child. He won't have it. In other words, it is possible to be in this position of Nicodemus and still not to be a Christian, not to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, never really to have entered into the kingdom itself. Now then I say here is something that is surely staggering and frightening that such people and such cases can still be outside the kingdom. That leads me to put a second proposition, which is this. The characteristics of this false belief. In the light of that, says someone, how can I ever know whether my belief is a true belief or a false belief? What is it about these people that keeps them Outside the kingdom. Well, the answer, unfortunately, is but too plain and clear. And yet it's something that is very often missed. What was defective, what was deficient about these people there who observed the miracles and believed in his name? What was the matter with Nicodemus? They belong exactly to the same group. Well, here are the things that we are clearly told about them. The first thing is that they only had a general interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. A general interest. What do I mean by a general interest? Well, here it is. Obviously, they were interested in and attracted by his person and by his personality. You see, you can be interested in the Lord Jesus Christ as a person and yet not be a Christian. Here were people who had come up to the Passover feast and suddenly they begin to hear people talking about this strange teacher who'd come up from Galilee, who was a carpenter, who wasn't a teacher at all, and neither a Pharisee nor a Sadducee, but they said he's doing some rather remarkable things, he's working miracles, such as we've never seen, come and have a look at him. And they went and they saw the miracles, and they looked at him and they saw his person. And they said, this is wonderful, this is amazing, this is really astonishing. They were attracted by the person, by the personality. 
by the character. There are many people in the world who are great admirers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're not Christians. That doesn't make us Christians. There are people who stand back, as it were, and look at him and say, isn't he the greatest personality that the world has ever seen? You know, there is this kind of person that's always interested in and attracted by personalities. It's something that's very natural, something that is very human. It's very much in evidence in the modern world. There are people who are almost prepared to worship men. They idealize them. They build them up into something that no man can ever be. And they become almost infallible and can do no wrong. The cult of personality. The thing that makes dictators possible. The kind of semi-worship that is sometimes given by some superficial people to royal personages and to statesmen and so on. That's it. It's just an attraction to personality as such. And there are people who say, I've read the literature, I've met great people, I've listened, but I see this Christ standing out alone, incomparable. There he is, and they praise him, and they laud him. These people have done that. They said there's something about this man we've never seen before. The person. And then, of course, on top of that, the miracles. They say, look at them. Can't you see what he's doing? The blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, the things he's doing. Tremendous. Indeed, they were very interested in the phenomena. We are told, and you notice how explicit the scripture is, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Now, here again is a very great characteristic of this mentality and this kind of person. They're always interested in phenomena. And if you can give them phenomena, they're always ready to follow and to believe. This is the explanation of all the cults. The cults, you see, produce a kind of phenomenon. They do certain things. They give experiences. And people are primarily interested in that sort of thing. They say, no, it's no use arguing. They say, don't talk to me about its rightness or its wrongness. It isn't a question of truth or no truth. Look at the facts. There was a person who was miserably is now happy. Therefore, this thing must be right. That's the argument. You're familiar with it. Or they may put it in terms of physical healing. They say, there was a person suffering from rheumatism, walking on crutches, and could barely do that. Suddenly in a meeting, the crutches were thrown away. The person was perfectly on. This must be right. The teaching can't be wrong. There is the result. You're familiar with the argument. It's popular today as it was popular nearly 2,000 years ago. These people, you see, observed the phenomena, the miracles, the healings, and so on, which our Lord did. And on the basis of that, they said, we believe that this is the Messiah. Now, that's the first thing that the scripture always teaches us about this kind of person. They're interested in the personality, and they're interested in phenomena. You see... Christianity seems to make people happy. Very well. If it'll make me happy, I'll have it. And then they have some kind of an experience and say, now I am happy, therefore it must be right. Or as I say, they have some other interest in the realm of uh, phenomena. 
People are always interested in and attracted by the odd and the eerie and that which they can't fully understand, that which suggests the, the miraculous. And you see, there are people who say today that the church must uh, recapture somehow this gift of healing which she should have and always was meant to possess, and if she only has it, she'll attract the masses. Oh, of course, if she appears to be doing things like that, she no doubt will. But you notice that when our Lord attracted people in that way only, he didn't commit himself to them. There are people who are attracted to him for those reasons and for those reasons only. It's what they're interested in, what they can get out of it, and nothing beyond that. That's the first thing, a general interest only. Or let me put it like this. Do you notice a very important and a very serious omission in what we are told about these people and about Nicodemus? Did you notice that we were not told about either of the parties that they were at all interested in his words and in his teaching? That, I say, is a very notable characteristic, and Nicodemus says the same thing. All he says is, no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. He doesn't say a word about the teaching, not a sentence. Miracles only, the same as these other people. How different these people are from the disciples of whom you read in the first chapter of this gospel according to St. John, who were always interested in his teaching. Do you remember two of them went to our Lord one afternoon and said, Master, where dwellest thou? What did they mean? They meant this. They said, where are you staying so that we can come and listen to your teaching and ask you questions? That was what they were interested in. They wanted teaching. But you see, there is a type of person who's interested in the Lord Jesus Christ who isn't interested in his teaching at all. They say, I'm not interested in all your talk about the cross and his death upon the cross. I'm not interested in your doctrines and in your theology. I'm interested in this great person who had such an impact upon his time and upon the people who surrounded him at Jerusalem and other places. I'm interested in these things that Christianity claims to do for people. I don't want to hear your doctrine about sin. That makes me feel miserable and unhappy. But I'm very interested in being happy. I'm interested in having physical health. I'm interested in having God and in having all my problems solved and if he can do that I'm in for it but I'm not interested in this teaching of his these people were not at all interested in the teaching that is the second characteristic of those who appear to be in the kingdom but who are not actually in the kingdom and the third and the last characteristic is this they were quite evidently not humble. You see, these are the people who trust to their own understanding. It's shown very perfectly in Nicodemus, who when our Lord does begin to teach him, argues with him, pulls him up, and says, What you mean? Can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? What is all this? How can these things be? What is this? You see, he's standing on his feet, addressing him almost as an equal. He says, I know you've got something a little bit beyond what I've got. But still, you see, he's self-satisfied. And these others evidently had looked on and had come to their conclusion and thus intellectually believed in him. In other words, the other characteristic of these people always is that they've never been humbled. They've never felt desperate. They feel that it's something that they can take up, something that they can understand with their own minds, something that they can do. 
They don't like this biblical doctrine of sin and of the need of the death of Christ upon the cross. No, no, they just want something beautiful, something nice, something cheery and happy, and so on. And all the rest of it, they feel, has somehow or another been feisted onto it. No, no, they're not interested in truth and in doctrines. They're just interested in the things that happen to appeal to them, and they want nothing else. There, then, are the characteristics of this false belief. Let every man examine himself. And I say that because of my third proposition, which is this. The uselessness of a false belief. What you mean, says someone, I mean this. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of men, for he knew what was in men. What does it mean? Shall I put it quite simply and bluntly by putting it like this? My dear friend, the first thing that you and I have got to understand about this kingdom of God is this. It is primarily not a question of what we do, but of what he does. Or if you like it, I'll even put it like this. What really matters is not so much whether we are interested in him, as whether he is interested in us. Here were people who were interested in him. Look at his miracles, they say. Look at his personality. What a marvelous man. This must be the Messiah. They believed in his name. When they saw the miracles, they were tremendously interested in him. Yes, but you know it's of no value to them. Why? Well, he was not interested in them. And I know of nothing more tremendous in this world in which we are alive at this moment than just that. My dear friend, I have to ask you at this point the most solemn question that you'll ever hear in the whole of your life. It's this. Is the Lord Jesus Christ interested in you? He wasn't interested in these people. He did not commit himself unto them. He did not entrust himself unto them. Indeed, if you like, he didn't trust them. Now, go back again, I say, to the first chapter and contrast his dealing with these people with his dealing with a man, for instance, like Peter or Andrew or any one of these others uh, whom you can find depicted there in that first chapter like Nathaniel, all those first disciples, that first group of disciples. How different his attitude is to them. He comes to them, he speaks to them, he explains things to them. But here are people who seem to believe in his name, and yet I say, he's not interested in them. What do you mean, says this, by this uh, someone? Well, let me try to answer it as simply and as directly as I can, because I say once more, there is nothing in life more important than this. Let me put my general question. Is the Lord Jesus Christ interested in you? Now, you notice I'm not asking whether you are interested in him. And I'm not asking the second question because the whole point of this sermon is to show you that you may be interested in him, but it's of no value to you if he's not interested in you. 
Ah, but you say, I'm tremendously interested in Christ. I'm interested in his Sermon on the Mount. I'm interested in what he can do. I'm interested in him as a person. I'm a tremendous admirer of him. I put him, I put him with Buddha and all the rest of them. I put him above them. All right, you may do it all. I say it is of no value to you. Unless he is interested in you. How can I know whether he's interested in me or not? Here is the answer. If he is not interested in you, he will leave you to yourself. And Jesus Christ will only appear in your life when you choose to look at him. I mean by that, that if he is not interested in you, well, he'll leave you severely alone and he'll leave you to yourself. And you can go on living for days and weeks and months and he won't enter your consciousness at all, and then perhaps somebody will say, well, what about going to church? Or you'll see a text on a wall, or something will happen that will make you think of him, and then you'll think of him again, and you say, oh, why, word? I used to be tremendously interested in him until I got absorbed in this other thing and was carried away by my career or by my interest. You see, it left you severely alone. Though you once had been very interested in him, he wasn't interested in you. And he always shows plainly here and now in time whether he's interested in us or not. That's the first answer I give. The second is this. If he is not interested in you, you will never have a sense of being dealt with by him. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you know what it is to feel that he's disturbing you and disturbing your life and that he won't leave you alone? Now, when he's not interested, it's the exact opposite of that. He does nothing at all about you. You can go on, as I say, for months and years. Nothing happens. He doesn't interfere with you at all. But you know, the moment he's interested in you, he begins to deal with you. And ever and again, he comes back to you and there are times when you even wish that you'd never heard his name, and you wish that he'd leave you alone. You wish that you didn't know anything about him, so that you could go and do other things which other people are inviting you to do, and you really want to do them, but thoughts of him come in and they prevent you and they stop you. He disturbs your life. Do you know anything about that? If the Lord Jesus Christ isn't dealing with you and disturbing you and interfering with your life, well, it just means that he's not interested in you. Another sign of it is this. When he's interested in us, we always have a sense of being drawn by him and of being led by him. You see, isn't it a remarkable thing the thing, I wasn't thinking about it at the time, but you know, I just felt something was happening to me. I was being drawn. I was being led. It's very difficult to put this in words, and yet it's one of the most real experiences a man can ever have. Oh, I've often used and borrowed this phrase from Wordsworth before. Wordsworth didn't mean what I mean, but it gives a kind of sense and impression of what I'm saying. Wordsworth was thinking about nature when he said, For I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joys of elevated thought. And I'm saying that when Christ is in a man, 
He can use those words in an infinitely higher sense than Wordsworth ever used them. He is aware of this presence that is always disturbing him and leading him and drawing him away from things and showing him the other life and trying to wean him from the world in that direction. That's what Christ does to a man when he's really interested. But he wasn't interested in these people. He just left them to... They said, we believe in you. He does nothing to do with them. He didn't trust himself to them. And then it goes on to this, of course, that it leads to a sense of dependence upon him. And a sense of dependence upon his work. It, need, it leads to a sense of sin. It leads to a sense of need. When Christ is interested in a man, and thus, as it were, keeps on erupting into his life and interfering and intervening, a man feels like Peter felt on that occasion, you remember, he was out fishing all night with the others and they caught nothing. And our Lord came and said, go back and throw the net on the other side. And they did and they caught so many that the net broke and they didn't know what to do. And people came, Peter came back and said to him, depart from me, O Lord, for, thou art a, for I am a sinful man. A sense of sin. And you know, when Christ is dealing with you and interested in you, he will always hold this mirror before you. And you'll see yourself and your sin. And you'll be made unhappy about them. And you'll lose your peace. And that death-like sleep in which you were. And you'll be concerned about yourself and about your whole future and about your eternal destiny. That's what happens when he becomes interested in us. And then he goes on. And leads us on by his spirit until he shows us that the only hope for us is that he has died for us and that there our sins can be forgiven and he gives us peace and rest and joy and an assurance of his blessed presence throughout the remainder of our life here in this world. And he gives us a sense of belonging to him and that nothing can ever separate us from him. Those are the results of Christ being interested in us. So I again ask my question. Is the Lord Jesus Christ interested in you? I know that you are interested in him or you wouldn't be in this service. But my dear friend, that isn't the matter, the thing that matters. Is he interested in you? Here were men in the days of his flesh. They believe in him. He's not interested. And if this is true in time, you know it's going to be true in eternity. And that is what makes this question and business of preaching such a dread responsibility that if a man but realized it truly, he would tremble and preach with fear and trembling because of the dread possibilities that lie ahead. You know it's the Son of God himself, the incarnate love of God in his only begotten Son who said this. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and cast out devils in thy name and done many mighty works in thy name? And I, he says, shall profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. It's he who says it. That he will say to these people who thought that they belonged to him, you have never belonged to me. You say you've been tremendously interested in me. 
I've never been interested in you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. You get that in the seventh chapter of Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll get exactly the same thing in the parable of the ten virgins in the twenty-fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. He says there are certain people who are going to be hammering at the door after death and at the day of judgment and saying, Open them to us! And he will say, No, no! You don't belong to me! Stay out where you've always been! Do you believe it's a pleasant thing to preach things like this? Do you think I've conjured these things out of my own imagination? Have I imagined these things? Do you think I'm fool enough to stand like this before you and say things like this? If Christ hasn't said them, they're his words. He did not commit himself unto them, though they were interested in him. He wasn't interested in them. And at the great day in eternity, he'll tell them this again. And let me remind you that nothing can pass his searching scan and gaze. He did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of men for he knew what was in men. He doesn't pay attention to letters of testimonial or of recommendation. He doesn't ask, show me your references. What have preachers said about you? What have great men said about you? What have counselors said about you? No, no. He says, I don't need it. I know. I see. I know all. We can fool one another. We cannot fool him. He knows all about us. He knows what is in men. He reads us like an open book. Very well, my friends. Where are we? Always interested? I ask again, are you sure that he is interested in you? Let me put it then like this as I finish. Have you ever been afraid of the fact that he's not interested in you? For if you haven't, I assure you he's never been interested in you. Have you ever realized your utter helplessness? What he says to all such people is what he said to Nicodemus. And this is what he said. Except men be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What's he mean? He means this. You've got to repent. Water. The baptism with water stands for repentance. John's baptism. The baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. In other words, you and I have got to realize how utterly helpless we are and that Christ is not someone for us to admire, for us to accept, for us to criticize, for us to take this or that which we happen to need from him. We've got to realize that he is the Son of God and that he came into this world because we are all vile and wretched sinners and that we can do nothing for ourselves, that he alone can save us. 
and that he has done so. Yes, and of the spirit, which means this rebirth that he talks about. That's why he interrupted Nicodemus. He knew that Nicodemus was going to say this, Master, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. And therefore I have come to ask this question, where have you got this? How can I get this power? I'm a teacher, but I can't do these miracles. What must I do in order to get this miraculous power? Stop, says Christ. What you need is not to advance from where you are to where I am. I'm altogether different. And you must be born again. You're altogether wrong. You need an entire and a complete change. And that is what it comes to. If you and I have not realized the need of a new heart, an entire revolution in the center of our being. We are not in the kingdom of God at all. Nobody can enter this kingdom except he be born again. You can admire Christ, I can, by nature, with our abilities. We can be interested in phenomena, nothing to stop us. People are. But you see, you can't go into the kingdom like that. Before I can enter that kingdom, I must undergo a complete revolution within, and nothing but the Spirit of God can do that. He must be born again. Have you been born again? Have you realized that unless Christ by the Spirit operates upon your soul and gives you this utter, absolute, new everything. That all that you have apart from that, even a belief in Christ, is absolutely useless. And he won't recognize it. And he won't recognize you. The only people that enter the kingdom of God are those who realize that they're so sinful and vile and foul that nothing but the shed blood of the Son of God can ever cleanse them. Nothing but the Spirit of God can give them life and ability and power. They realize their utter need of the new birth. And they go to him for it. Have you got it? Do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is interested in you? If you don't, oh, I say, go to him. Make no tarrying. Fly to him. Tell him that you don't know, that you're not sure. Ask him to make it certain. Cry out to him in your need and in your agony. And I assure you that if you do so, he will not reject you. Amen.